trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Let's just jump right in, shall we? If you're joining us for the first time, this is a place where we revel in wrong think. That doesn't mean we have all the answers. It doesn't mean that anything anybody else says, we go, nah. <laughs> it's, it's not about being a contrarian. It's just about being willing to question the narratives. And boy, are there a lot of narratives going on around us right now. And, and sussing out the truth from error. And it's harder than it sounds because right now there are entire you know, apparatus and, and armies of misinformation and disinformation people and algorithms out there trying very hard to keep us from seeing the truth. So I'm not here to tell you what to think, but I am here to encourage you, question all of it. And don't be ashamed about doing so. I don't think it's ever been more important to really um, be able to tell truth from error. But that doesn't mean we have to know everything about everything that's going on in the world. Well, what exactly are the dynamics of the uh, Israeli-Palestinian situation? There's a lot to that. Now, if you want to study it out, uh, I would encourage you to do so, frankly, because you'll find that there's a lot of narrative that's at play there. And and, uh, very little of it actually reflects, you know, a full kind of truth. It's all very calculated to lead you to one political conclusion or another, which is why you see people fighting in the streets. And I'm paraphrasing this uh, this saying, but I think there's truth to it, and that is to to a person who is uninformed, everything sounds like an argument. And that's true for people who really don't know where they stand. The most defensive, dogmatic people you're going to meet are people who have to be right because they're not so sure about where they stand, and it scares them. It's, it's, it's intimidating. So I'm not going to tell you, you know, here's what you, here's what you should be thinking, but I'm going to definitely give you some food for thought on a few different ideas that, uh, that will hopefully aid your thinking and at least give you some options to weigh, you know, the, the narrative against and to decide for yourself. I've got this quote from George Orwell, the further a society drifts from the truth, the more it will hate those that speak it. So here's the question I have for you right out of the bat. Are you, are you ready to be hated, marginalized, treated like crap because you're willing to speak the truth or you're willing to question the narratives that are being beamed at us around the clock? I think most, most of us would say, well, yeah, yeah, you know, if it's a little bit uncomfortable, I guess that's, that's what I'm going to have to do. And I think uh, we, need to, we need to change that uh, reluctant, well, I guess so, yeah, I'm willing to suffer a little bit for the truth. When you can say without any hesitation, of course I would suffer for the truth. Is there any other way? <laughs> then you know you've pretty much arrived. So I want to start today with a little bit on the crisis of faith, crises of faith, because there's more than one that's going on right now. And any of them taken by themselves would be concerning, to put it mildly. Jonathan Turley says a recent poll shows Americans are increasingly rejecting the Constitution and choosing violence. Okay, that's concerning, or at least it should be concerning to most of us. Jonathan Turley says, below is my column on Fox.com. 
on the poll released last week showing an increasing number of citizens have lost faith in our constitutional system and now view violence as warranted to silence those with opposing views. He says it's a crisis of faith that represents the greatest possible threat to our republic. The loss of faith and fealty constitutes one of the greatest crises that our nation has faced since its foundation. So here's what he says in the column. He says a recent startling poll shows a majority of voters not only view the opposing party as a threat to the nation, but justifying violence to combat their agenda. Now, Jonathan Turley says the poll captures a crisis of faith that I've been writing about for over a decade as an academic and a commentator. He says many now question democracy as a sustainable system of government. It represents the single greatest threat to this nation, a citizenry that has lost faith, not just with our system of government, but with each other. The polls by the University of Virginia Center for Politics shows a nation at war with itself. 52% of Biden supporters say Republicans are now a threat to American life, while 47% of Trump supporters say the same thing about Democrats. Now, among Biden supporters, 41% now believe violence is justified to stop Republicans from achieving their goals. An almost identical percentage, 38% of Trump supporters now embrace violence to stop Democrats. I mean, you can see where this is heading, right? Not good. Jonathan Turley says, not surprisingly, many of these people have lost faith in democracy. Some 31% of Trump supporters believe the nation should explore alternative forms of government. Roughly a quarter, 24% of Biden supporters also question the viability of democracy. Now, just as an aside here, I think Jonathan Turley is using the term democracy in, a, in its broadest sense. I don't think he's meaning strictly, you know, one person, one voice, mob rules type democracy. But I could be wrong. He says, faith is the one thing that no system of government can do without. And what he means is without faith in the underlying values of a constitutional system, authority rests on a mix of coercion and capitulation. He says, for years I've written about this growing loss of faith and how it's been fueled by our intellectual and political elites. In the echo chamber of news and social media, citizens constantly hear how the opposing party is composed of traitors and how the constitutional system works to protect enemies of the people. So viewers now get a steady diet of figures like MSNBC commentator Ellie Mistel, who called the U.S. Constitution trash and argued that we should simply just dump it. In a New York Times column, the Constitution is broken and should not be reclaimed. Law professors Ryan Durfler of Harvard and Samuel Moyne of Yale called for the Constitution to be radically altered to reclaim America from constitutionalism. I'm still trying to get my mind around that one. Georgetown University law professor Rosa Brooks went on MSNBC's The Read the Readout to lash out at Americans becoming slaves to the U.S. Constitution and that the Constitution itself is now the problem for the country. Now, Jonathan Turley says they're part of the radical chic that has become the norm in academia and widely embraced by the media. According to these law professors, the problem's not just our Constitution, but constitutionalism in general. Now, others have argued that key protections or institutions should just be ignored. In a recent open letter, Harvard law professor Mark Tushnet and San Francisco State University political scientist Aaron Belkin called upon President Joe Biden to defy rulings of the Supreme Court that he considers mistaken in the name of popular constitutionalism. 
Now, popular constitutionalism appears a form of discretionary or ad hoc compliance with constitutional law. If only popular constitutional rules are followed, the Constitution itself becomes a mere pretense for whatever the shifting majority or forming mob demands. Now, he says politicians have also contributed to this crisis of faith in challenging constitutional values or core institutions. So, members like uh, AOC have questioned the need for a Supreme Court. Others, like Senator Elizabeth Warren, called for packing of the Supreme Court to simply create an immediate liberal majority. Senate Majority Leader Charles Schumer thrilled his base by going to the steps of the Supreme Court to declare, I want to tell you, Gorsuch, I want to tell you, Kavanaugh, you have released the whirlwind and you will pay the price. You won't know what hits you if you go forward with these awful decisions. So, it's little surprise that one man showed up at the home of Justice Brett Kavanaugh to kill him for his awful decisions. Conversely, as former President Donald Trump has regularly denounced his political opponents as traitors and enemies of the people, he recently declared, if you go after me, I'm coming after you. So with leaders engaging in such reckless rhetoric, it's hardly surprising that the Constitution itself is now viewed as a threat to our nation rather than the very thing that defines us. Turley says it's designed to restrain the majority and protect those who are least popular in our society. In the end, a constitution remains a covenant, not between citizens and their government, but between each other as citizens. It demands a leap of faith, a commitment that despite our differences, we will defend the rights of our neighbors. He says, if nothing else, the Constitution has one thing to recommend it. We're still here. It's a Constitution that has survived economic and political upheavals. It survived a civil war. Again, I would argue it's more of a, uh, a war between the states. South wasn't trying to take over the North, in which hundreds of thousands were killed. Now, Turley says it's not a particularly poetic document. It was written by the ultimate wonk, James Madison. If you want truly inspirational prose, try any of the French constitutions. Now, of course, they had more practice since they regularly failed. Other countries based their constitutions on aspirational statements of the values that we shared. The Madisonian system spent as much time on what divided us, but not, it not only recognized the danger of factions, but created a system to bring such divisions to the surface where they could be addressed. I've got to tap the brakes here because we're coming up on our own break, but I do have a link to this article by Jonathan Turley, published on lewrockwell.com. I've got it in my show notes at thebrianheightshow.com. These are the show notes for October 25th, 2023. We'll take a very quick break. We'll come back to Turley's commentary. I've got some more goodies to share with you. Thanks again for tuning in today. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm sharing Jonathan Turley's commentary. This was published on foxnews.com. Maybe it was just on fox.com. Anyway... Jonathan Turley talking about America's crisis of faith and a poll that he cites that apparently shows more Americans are rejecting the Constitution and embracing violence. I mean, we've seen the buildup to this, right? This hopefully doesn't take you by complete surprise. Oh, my word, where did this come from? One thing he points out here is the danger of other systems was realized when these divisions were left below the surface 
meaning the divisions of faction, where they would fester and explode in the streets of Paris. The American Constitution allowed for a type of controlled implosion toward the center of the system. These national interests, or these factional interests, rather, would be expressed and vented in the legislative branch. Now, the Macedonian system doesn't hide our divisions, or the Madison, Madisonian system, rather. It invites their expression. So the question, he says, is whether we've reached a time whether the things that divide us will now overcome what unites us. And that is a very relevant question. This is not our first age of rage. In fact, at the start of our republic, rivaling parties were not just figuratively trying to kill each other. They were actively, actually trying to kill each other through laws like the Alien and Sedition Acts. Thomas Jefferson would refer to the term of his predecessor, John Adams, as the reign of the witches. Yet that history is no guarantee that it can survive our current age of rage. The relentless attacks on the Constitution from the political, media, and academic elite has turned many into constitutional atheists. Yet the future of our constitutional system may rest with the rising number of constitutional agnostics. In other words, those citizens who are simply disconnected or disinterested in the defense of our founding principles. He says, philosopher John Stuart Mill warned in 1867 that all it takes for evil to prevail is for good men to look on and do nothing. We are now in an existential struggle to preserve the values that founded the most successful constitutional system in the history of the world. And Jonathan Turley says it is our legacy that now can either be boldly defended by a grateful people or lost in the whimper of a disinterested generation. He's got a point. And, you know, this, this is the, the conundrum that I face here. Um, I was raised to believe, you know, that the Constitution is a good and solid thing. I still remember when the bicentennial of the Constitution was observed back in 1987. And I had this small inkling at the time that, yes, something remarkable has happened here. You know, that uh, the fledgling colonies were able to, uh, you know, secure their freedom from the greatest military power on earth. And I'll just come right out and tell you what I'm thinking. They did not do that all on their own. I believe that there was a providential, as in godly hand, that, that sustained them and helped them to attain their, their independence. I also believe that the Constitution that they gave us was one of the most remarkable, if not the most remarkable political contract ever written by the hand of man. And if it's not too much to, if this doesn't freak out too bad, I believe that, I believe God specifically raised up individuals who would be capable of being the kind of leaders that could secure their independence from Britain and come up with this constitution. They were not just doing, you know, well, this is, this is what's cool. Here's what's, here's what everybody's raging about on the French Riviera. They had lots of history. They spent serious time thinking about what had worked and what hadn't. This is one of the reasons why direct democracy was just not an option. And you won't see direct democracy referenced in the Constitution. But here's the problem, and maybe you can relate to this. When you say just so much as the word Constitution to people, what happens with most folks? Okay, now maybe I'm, maybe I'm the odd man out here, but 
I have this perception that most people, when they hear the term, well, yes, well, you know, the Constitution is essential because of it, their eyes just kind of glaze over. Oh, well, he's talking about the Constitution. Next thing you know, he'll be inviting me to some John Birch Society meeting or something like that. In other words, it's, it's, it's gone out of style, not because the principles and the practices still aren't valid. They are. But it's gone out of style in the sense that we have lost touch with it. It's, it's almost like it's written in some foreign language, right? You watch somebody read through the Constitution or even through the Declaration of Independence, for that matter. It's like, well, what's all this flowery language? I mean, we don't talk that way today. But the principles are what really seem to be alien to us. And the only, the only thing I know to, to address that, look, I'm not trying to turn people into constitutional groupies. We don't need cheerleaders at this point. What we need are disciples. I've talked about this maybe once or twice before, but the difference between a cheerleader and a disciple is night and day. Cheerleaders are there to get people fired up, right? To, to bring that spirit of excitement, to get people, you know, cheering for the team, rah, rah, rah. And I mean no disrespect when I say this, okay? If you were a cheerleader, I'm not trying to diss on you or harsh your buzz, but cheerleaders are there to, to bring good feelings and to build excitement. Disciples have to take a little more long-term approach because that, that, uh, that enthusiasm, that, that uh, rah, 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 it's very short-term. It's very superficial. Yes, at the moment when people are cheering, you know, hey, we're part of a moment here. This is, this is really cool. But disciples have to take the longer-term approach of they are there to teach truth. Sometimes through their words, most often through the way that they live their lives, the way they conduct themselves. Disciples rarely seem to be having a really fun time, <laughs> you know, as they're uh, representing the truth. And it's not because the truth isn't a good thing. It's not because it's, you know, this horrible imposition. It's, it's because so few people really want to hear the truth. And so disciples have to be willing to speak the truth with the understanding that most people aren't that interested they're not going to drop what they're doing, you know, so you can explain why the founding generation had these auxiliary precautions and was so good about, you know, setting things up the way that they did. So if you want to be a disciple, you got to be willing to suffer for your beliefs. You got to be willing to be rejected by people who have better things to do and, you know, don't really want to understand what it is you're talking about because it doesn't really matter. And so, so they believe. But the most important part of being a disciple, and this is the part where we, that we can't skip over, you have to know this for yourself. Disciples cannot run around on borrowed light. They have to know for themselves. This is super important. So I'm encouraging you, step up and be a disciple of liberty. Don't... Don't be one of those people who's content to just sit back and, yeah, 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 we think it's a good idea. Be a disciple of liberty. Give it your all and be willing to sacrifice, be willing to suffer a bit. I have a feeling that, uh, you know, the halls of eternity are long and someday I believe that we will, you know, stand in the presence of people who really did pay the price to advance the cause of liberty. That doesn't mean you know, only the soldiers who died in its defense. I'm talking about the people who, 
stood up for liberty in their own way. If I can be so bold, I'll confess. You know, one of the heroes that I wish to face someday would be Sophie Scholl, who uh, helped to uh, found and operate the White Rose Society in Germany when, uh, when the Nazis were in power. Yes, she was caught, she was tried, she was executed for her efforts to try to turn the German people away from supporting Hitler. But she did the right thing. She was only 19 years old. I mean, for crying out loud, she was, she was not an old person. I want to be the kind of person, though, who has worked hard enough at not just promoting the principles of liberty, but living them, and through the way I'm living them, inspiring others to take a closer look or to consider their value. Because I want to be able to look Sophie Scholl in the eye one day and say, look, I did my part too. And I'm hoping it won't end up with me, you know, losing my head. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Okay, welcome back to the show. Sorry, I got a little deep in that last uh, segment there. I guess it's one of those things that uh, that matters to me more than I think. I get going and then realize, oh my goodness, I sound like an absolute nut. I'll take that risk, though, because I believe that uh, at some level this all matters, probably more than even I realize. So one of the most disappointing things for those of us who grew up with Disney is watching that Disney become this source of industrial strength wokeness. Now look, as a kid... If it was a Disney show, guaranteed my folks were going to let me watch it. Even in the 1980s, when Disney actually started to put out some shows that, uh, um, I don't know how to put this, were not, you know, like cutting-edge exorcist-type, you know, horror movies, but they put out a couple pretty scary ones. Something Wicked This Way Comes, the adaptation of the Ray Bradbury book, marvelous and creepy. The Watcher in the Woods, same kind of thing. But that was still innocent. It was still Disney. And this is the thing that, that blows me away is most of us grew up with Disney, even as, as my kids were growing up. If it was a Disney movie, I was like, ah, yeah, yeah, they'll be fine watching it because I knew there wasn't going to be some kind of subversive message. Not so much today. In fact, Disney, Disney is kind of hitting on some hard times. They may have reached peak wokeness and pushed things just a little farther than they should. Got an article here by Kurt Malberg. Wondering, will this new kids' entertainment app topple woke Disney? Kurt says, for a long time now, conservatives and other traditionally-minded people have been on the cultural back foot. We've become astute at critiquing the madness of the modern world, but not so adept at offering creative solutions. Fortunately, he says, that's all beginning to change. Consider just the latest example of this welcome trend. Conservative news empire The Daily Wire has used the 100th anniversary of Disney's founding to announce the surprise launch of its own children's entertainment brand called Bent Key. Now, at last week's release, the Bent Key streaming app launched with 158, I'm sorry, 150 episodes across 18 kids series, with four of the shows being brand new and produced in-house. New episodes will drop each Saturday in a tribute to the nostalgic Saturday morning cartoon tradition. Bent Key represents a, semi, a self-conscious rather, broadside against the Walt Disney Company, 
a corporation that has all but abandoned creative storytelling, telling rather to push a political agenda. So in a video created for Bent Key's launch, Daily Wire co-founder Jeremy Boring pulled no punches, saying it's been just a little over one year since Disney, the most powerful entertainment company in the world, got caught saying the quiet part out loud. Namely, that they were using their brand, a brand parents had been trusting with their children for generations, to indoctrinate those children into the LGBTQIA cult. Now, Boring says it would be impossible to overstate just how big a loss this is for Americans who believe in basic reality. Disney controls the greatest content library ever created. Their cultural reach, particularly with children, is beyond anything that's ever existed. Now, Bent Key is the realization of a commitment made by the Daily Wire early last year to invest $100 million over three years into children's entertainment. According to Boring, Bent Key's aim is to create the next generation of timeless stories that transport kids into a world of adventure, imagination, and joy. So its four in-studio originals include Chip Chilla, a cartoon series about a family of homeschooled chinchillas, Kid Fit Go, a child-directed fitness program, Kid Explorer, which tells of the people and events that have shaped the modern world, and A Wonderful Day with Mabel McClay, a live-action show about a kindly woman and her pet dog who sing songs, read books, build gadgets, and have fun with their neighbors. Now, in addition to their, addition, to their original content, Boring explains that Bent Key has curated content with other production studios worldwide that we would trust our kids with. So as part of the big Bent Key reveal, Boring announced that the new sto- the new studio will release its own live-action remake of the classic Snow White fairy tale titled Snow White and the Evil Queen, due for release in 2024. I kind of like this because I'm thinking about uh, some of the widespread skepticism at Disney's own woke live-action Snow White remake. It's possible that Bent Key cashes in on Disney's folly and even surpasses Disney's takings. Now, what is sure, says Kurt Malberg, is that Disney is intent on pushing a particular agenda on its impressionable young viewers. As Boring noted, back in 2022, a leaked video showed an executive producer discussing a not-at-all-secret gay agenda, noting that her team is adding queerness to the children's content. Now, Kurt says, unless something dramatic changes in the entertainment industry... It seems unlikely that we will so easily return to the days of content that promotes traditional family values. Same could be said for woke corporations and other institutions. Now, for those who uphold traditional values, creating and finding alternatives may be the key to creating the cultural pressure that either revives or replaces such failing institutions. But he says when it comes to Disney, will Bent Key be an entertaining and wholesome alternative to Hollywood's programming? Well, only kids and their parents get to make that call, but in a world gone woke, maybe Boring's wildest dreams will come true. I'm not, uh, I'm not all about, yeah, burn Disney. <laughs> it's time to tear down that mouse's playhouse. But I am encouraged when I see people, or in this case, you know, the Daily Wire and, and, and a group of people who are concerned about the direction entertainment is going, stepping up and creating an alternative. Now, that doesn't mean that they have to be on a perfect par with Disney and, you know, able to compete, you know, right across the board. Not at all. Just that willingness to step up and fill that need. By the way, and I got to give credit, like, to, to Connor Boyack and the Tuttle Twins. 
same kind of thing. Wholesome, I'm going to use the word indoctrination for children. And let's, let's not shy away from indoctrination because we're trying to teach them correct principles. That's going to involve some indoctrination. The, the key is, are you indoctrinating them in such a way that they feel like, really, I have no choice but to go along with this or else you know, I'm going to be ostracized or perhaps put in a camp or something? Because that seems to be kind of how the left approaches. Look, you will believe this, you will chant this, you will bend the knee or else. I don't think we can fall into a similar trap. But I do applaud anybody who provides, you know, an alternative to what Disney is doing. I say more power to them. All right, moving on. Um, this is a great article by J.B. Shirk. And where we have uh, our work cut out for us in discerning truth from error, I wanted to share some enlightening examples of how we're stuck in the mouth of Marxist madness because we won't call things by their truthful names. J.B. Shirk says, At the beginning of October, Hungarian Prime Minister Viktor Orban denounced the European Union's 1984-inspired manipulation of language. And he makes a great observation here. He said, Brussels is creating an Orwellian world in front of our eyes. They buy and supply weapons through the European Peace Facility. Good point. They want to control the media through the Media Freedom Act. We didn't fight the communists to end up in 1984. The peace facilities responsible for transferring billions of dollars worth of artillery and ammunition to Ukraine. The Media Freedom Act gives European bureaucrats extraordinary powers to censor any speech or ideas they dislike. Now, Shirk says, although Orban is is absolutely correct in his assessment of European madness, there is no design or there is no sign rather that his warning will have any corrective effect. The Eurocrats are so steeped in self-deluding propaganda that it would not be at all surprising to see them pull another page straight out of 1984 by carving on one of their marble government buildings the same three slogans that adorned Orwell's Ministry of Truth. War is peace. Freedom is slavery. Ignorance is strength. Such is the depth of the rabbit hole into which the European hive mind has descended that too many ordinary citizens would miss the depressing irony. Now, J.B. Shirk says... As if recognizing that Europe's embrace of censorship, surveillance, and social control inconveniently mirrors Orwell's condemnation of Big Brother and Big Government to perfection, the British ruling class attempted this month to cancel Orwell by using an article in The Telegraph to accuse the prophetic genius of being sadistic, misogynistic, homophobic, and sometimes violent. In other words, someone who should not be tolerated and no longer deserves to be read. Hmm. If canceling the author who warned the world about such forms of slithery government tyranny is not peak Orwell, well, then the crazy train is still barreling down the, still barreling down the tracks promises to be a doozy. Now, Shirk's point is, Americans, of course, are similarly under siege from an Orwellian deep state that manipulates the public by distorting history and undermining the meaning of words. Remember, this is the nation that celebrates George Floyd as a hero clings to the hands-up, don't-shoot, lie as a sacred truth, and blames Hillary's election loss on Russian bots. You do remember that, right? Propaganda is king. The U.S. fights racism by institutionalizing racial preferences. At least the government does that. It supports Black Lives Matter and Antifa domestic terrorists while locking up American patriots as domestic enemies. And this is just the start. We'll come back to J.B. Shirk's commentary right after these messages. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. Final segment of the show today. Just want to finish up this uh, commentary from J.B. Shirk about uh, the mouth of Marxist madness. And and I want you to think about this because we kind of get, I don't know, we get nonchalant about it. We're, we're used to it. We build up our tolerance. We realize, oh, well, you know, that's just the way things are. It doesn't shock us so much. But when you see the U.S. government fighting racism by institutionalizing racial preferences, that should set off some warning flags. When it replaces impartial justice with social justice or equality under laws with equitable special privileges. Climate change communism kills property rights. Meme makers go to prison, but Russia collusion hoaxers don't. Gene-altering serums are called vaccines, and generations of judges have replaced the U.S. Constitution with their own postmodern revisions. Now, do you remember that back when President Trump was elected in 2016, Movie theaters in cities across the country actually ran the 1984 released movie version of Orwell's Masterpiece, starring John Hurt and Richard Burton, as some sort of cinematic censure of Trump's rise to power. Now, at the time, the spectacle seemed to be amusing, says uh, J.B. Shirk. Trump, the outsider, was clearly beholden to no Big Brother deep state. Far from participating in the insidious programs of political correctness that 1984 so effectively damns as the building blocks of totalitarianism, Donald Trump has always been one of the more plainly spoken, at times brutally frank, Americans to take the world stage. Instead of hiding behind riddles, insinuations, and other verbal contortions, President Trump tells anyone who is listening exactly how he feels. Yet the Marxists, the same Marxists who or, whom Orwell criticized, using Orwell to criticize their political birth. Let's try this again. The same Marxists whom or, Orwell criticized used Orwell to criticize their political boogeyman. You follow? That was confounding. J.B. Shirk says seven years later, and the language games have just gotten worse. He says, any time a majority of the American people express a preference for something at odds with the permanent ruling class occupying D.C., whether it's curbing illegal immigration, uh, profligate government spending and endless wars as examples, the U.S. government rejects the public's wishes as threats to democracy. And while the government insists that its bureaucrats represent the people's will, while expressing dismay that the people's will could differ from that of the bureaucrats. In other words, an oligarchy of elites now calls itself a democracy and majority public opinion is ridiculed as anti-democratic. That does sound about right. Shirk says, pretending that authoritarianism is democratic makes it much easier to assist dictators overseas who do the same thing. While Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky shuts down opposition political parties, church services led by priests pleading for peace and the prospect of free speech, the U.S. government claims that support for Ukraine is support for Western values. And while the Gazan people overwhelmingly support Hamas terrorist attacks on helpless Jewish civilians, American and European, American and, and European leaders falsely claim that their bloodlust is actually peaceful in nature. While Iran's theocratic dictatorship threatens Israel's existence and supports the torture and killing of girls accused of violating Sharia law, 
Barack Obama, John Kerry, and Joe Biden have spent the last 15 years doing the murderous Ayatollah's bidding. In Orwellian fashion, tyrannies defended as democratic and Western and should serve as a warning to the Western citizens of the direction their leaders are taken. Taking, rather. Now, J.B. Shirk says, Of course, if Orwell prophetically captured the malicious spirit of our present age, it was Aldous Huxley who foresaw its moral degradation. He understood that promiscuity, drug addiction, and other pleasure-seeking obsessions are not only gateways to eroding religious conviction, but also the perfect tools for any authoritarian government seeking to keep the public mentally enslaved and subdued. If a free-thinking individual can be relegated to a hallucinogenic state of narcotic dependency, then that person will never again possess the free will to challenge anything. If adolescents can be taught to embrace a revolving door of sexual partners while joyfully shouting their abortions, then they can be prevented from ever creating stable families of their own. Healthy marriages produce happy families with thoughtful children who in turn grow to be self-sufficient, productive adults. Does that not just seem like absolute common sense? And yet, I promise you, there are people who would need heart medicine after hearing such a thought. J.B. Shirk says, Governments that require their citizens to be obedient are strongest when those citizens remain dependent upon government for life. Drug-addled, psychologically confused adults who are incapable of taking care of their own families are the perfect candidates for government enslavement. In Brave New World, Huxley describes a tyrannical society where sex has been stripped of love, intimacy, and its childbearing purpose. In a scene where an authority figure attempts to explain the West's forgotten notions of morality to a group of astonished children, he explains erotic play between children had been regarded as abnormal. There was a roar of laughter. And not only abnormal, but and not only abnormal, actually immoral. No. And had therefore been rigorously suppressed. In a world where babies are decanted in hatcheries, women use abortion to end pregnancies, and people are fed a diet of pills to keep them docile and compliant. The government has no trouble maintaining control over people's lives. Now, J.B. Shirk says, compare Huxley's dystopian world, in which the drug Soma is used to tranquilize the public, to our own world today. Recent figures show that nearly a quarter of Scotland's adult population is being prescribed antidepressants, while 15% of Americans are similarly prescribed some form of powerful selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors known to cause dangerous side effects including loss of sexual function, insomnia, brain fog, suicidal ideation, and self-harm. In the U.S., 50% of the population over 12 has used illegal drugs. Overdose deaths have tripled since 2000. 55 million American adults currently use marijuana. Whether through alcohol, opioids, marijuana, or hallucinogens, Americans are walking around in a soma-like daze. His point is we are in the mouth of Marxist madness or Orwell's Ministry of Truth and Huxley's recipe for enfeebling the masses in a hedonistic stupor have combined to usher in a twisted new era of Western totalitarianism. But J.B. Shirk says the real danger, though, is that their dire warnings will be accepted as fate accompli. Instead, they should be used as stark rallying cries for resisting government tyranny. Hear, hear. And by the way, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to have uh, uh, Jeffrey Einstein on my show tomorrow, who uh, talks about uh, 
talks about not just uh, Orwell, but uh, but Huxley. He he coined the term Huxwell. But we'll talk about uh, the addictions that we face, our addiction to fear, our addiction to screens. I have really enjoyed uh, Jeffrey Einstein's uh, Substack, and I would encourage you, um, when you get the chance tomorrow, first of all, listen to our interview. Secondly, follow the links that I will provide in tomorrow's show notes. It'll take you right to uh, Jeff's Substack page. I think he's got a very viable answer. And it starts with turning away from the screens, getting your own life in order, and reestablishing family traditions, even if it's something as simple as family dinner. That's where it starts. Okay, two quick things to, to note here before we close things out today. Uh, two essays that I want you to check out. A lot of fanaticism going on right now, not just in America, but around the world. Brandon Smith says that's not an accident. In fact, he describes the weaponization of fanaticism and why the left loves Islam, but Islam does not feel the same way about the left. And also, I'm including as the article of the day, this is an article from the Brownstone Institute, Mark Oshinsky, Talks about, uh, you know, we've, we've learned a lot in the last three years about who our friends are and who they aren't. And Mark Oshinsky has this incredible essay on broken friendships. More importantly, how our friends help us to know what is true. I think we all learned quite a bit about, uh, about our true friends over the last uh, three years, right? I mean, it still pains me to think there, there are people, and, and I'm, I guess I'm among them. I can't, I couldn't name off the top of my head, what friendships have you lost as a result of of, you know, COVID policies. I don't know. I know I've frustrated a few people, a few loved ones. And, you know, um, so far as, as far as I know, nobody's renounced me. But, you know, hey, you know, the day is still young. But did you have friends say, well, we'd like you to come over, but, uh, you know, until everybody's vaccinated, we just won't be having any kind of family get-togethers or we won't be having any birthday parties or anything like that. I think you should take a look at Mark Oshinsky's essay on broken friendships it's, it's really good, and if nothing else, it will help you come away with a sense of what it really means to be a good friend, not, to, not a contingent one who's, well, your obedience to the civic religion is what's going to determine whether or not you and I can stay friends. I'll tell you this, one thing that I have learned in the last three years, I absolutely know a handful of people with whom I could comfortably put my life in their hands and I would feel absolutely safe okay that's the good news the bad news is I also learned there's a lot of people who would drop a dime on me in a heartbeat gotta steer clear this is the Brian Hyde show